The kiddos are dismissed over out those doors right now if they want to go over to Children's Church. Kids, you can head that way, and there might be a few adults that want to head that way too. I don't know, but <laughs> um, my my pleasure, my blessing to be able to to uh, fill in today, and uh, we have been doing a study through the book of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom. <clears throat> I trust over the past several weeks as we've been studying together, you started to get a sense that there's something unique about this Jesus guy. Whether you're learning about him for the first time or seeing him anew with fresh perspective, I think we can say he's not your typical person. Jesus doesn't have your typical genealogy. He is directly connected to the line of Israel's King David and God's promises to David of an eternal Savior King who would sit on David's throne. Jesus didn't have your typical birth. I don't know about you, but angels weren't delivering messages to my parents before I was born. Excuse me. And if you want to bring in Luke's account, Uh, No angels filled the sky saying, Dave's here, Dave's here, okay? Not me. (laughs) Jesus didn't have your typical childhood. Did religious astronomers from the regions of Iraq and Iran show up when you were a toddler because they saw a star in the sky that started shining when you were born? Uh, I remember looking in my grandma's, you know, photo albums. I got a little blurb in the local newspaper. That's what I got. Did you have to flee for your life and in so doing fulfill prophecies that mirrored the nation of Israel, God's chosen people? Jesus didn't have your typical, can I say, press release about his future You know, sometimes you hear in the news or you might see an article about an athlete or a student and what they're planning to do with their future. Jesus had an Old Testament-style prophet, John the Baptist, calling people to admit their need of a Savior and get ready for the coming Messiah. And Jesus didn't have your typical baptism of repentance. When Jesus came to John the Baptist, John tried to stop him because Jesus didn't need to repent of sin. Remember at the end of chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, it says, John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, and are you coming to me? But Jesus wanted to be baptized to show that he was identifying himself with those who do need to repent of sin. That's why he says in verse 15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, empowering him for his earthly ministry... And the Father also verbally identified Jesus as God the Son, verses 16 to 17. 
And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All of that didn't happen to anyone else that John baptized. Jesus is unique because he is God the Son who became humid so that he could be our Savior and King. No one else is like him or can be like him. He is uniquely qualified. But if you're like me, qualifications are only part of what I look for in a leader. I can think of many politicians in Washington, D.C., whom we would say have amazing qualifications, but they also seem amazingly out of touch with what you and I face every day. They don't really struggle with what I struggle with. They don't live what I live. So I can end up being uncertain and suspicious about if they're worth following. You know, in the next election, maybe I'll just vote for someone else. At times, you might feel that way about Jesus, particularly when it comes to his role as king of your life. Yes, he's got some pretty amazing credentials, but does he really know what I struggle with? Does he understand the pain, the temptation, the wrestling with my own heart that I face every day? Or is he like other leaders, living an insulated life and offering empty campaign promises? Well, Matthew answers those questions for us as we come to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 today. Jesus has just identified himself with us, sinners, even though he didn't have to. He has been empowered by the Spirit for his earthly ministry, and he has been affirmed as the beloved Son of God who pleases the Father. And what comes next? the battle with temptation where you and I live every day. Jesus did not avoid it. Instead, he willingly followed the Spirit through it because it was his Father's will for him. And in so doing, he shows us three foundational reasons why Jesus should be your king. Three foundational reasons why Jesus should be your king. The very first one we find right there at chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The first reason is this Jesus faced temptation just like we do. Again, don't forget. Jesus has just been empowered by the Spirit for his earthly ministry. After this period of testing, of of temptation in the wilderness, you see him begin that ministry. He, He picks up the message that John the Baptist had been preaching. Now we see the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. But flip that around for just a moment. 
that means that Jesus is following the Spirit's leading. He's following God's direction for his life. Jesus is living his human life the same way that he calls believers to live theirs, submitted to the Spirit. Do you remember Galatians 5, 16 to 17? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Jesus is walking by the Spirit here. He's not aloof. He's modeling this type of life for us. And he follows the Spirit into the wilderness for testing by God and tempting by Satan. It's interesting because the Greek word that Matthew uses here for tempted has both a positive nuance and a negative nuance to it. The positive nuance is one of testing to reveal a person's character, like who they really are at the core. So think of of Matthew 4 here as kind of like a hot mic moment. You're going to see who Jesus really is. The negative nuance, though, is one of tempting a person towards sin. And it is prominent here because it's directly connected to the devil, right? It says he's going to be tempted by the devil. And we want to be very clear, God is not the one tempting Jesus to sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 clearly identifies God is not tempted by evil, and he tempts no one with evil. While God seeks to reveal Jesus' character here, Satan seeks to tempt Jesus to go against his Father's will. And that helps us identify what can make temptation so difficult in our own lives. Because most often, temptation is taking something that is good and not using it the way that God intended. For instance, do you like quiet? Do you like order? You know, when I get up in the morning and the house is quiet, maybe nobody else is up yet, and it's just still and nice. And then five minutes later, my kids get up, and all that goes away. There's energy, there's activity, there's a little chaos. And you know what? I can start to get frustrated by that. I can get angry that I have to deal with this because I like quiet. Now, there's nothing wrong with quiet, right? Peace, serenity. But when I start to want it at the expense of someone else, I'm being tempted towards sin. How about food? It's delicious and should be enjoyed. I mean, God created it with such variety. But we can be tempted to misuse it or overuse it so that it begins to harm our health. What about sex? It's beautiful, and it's meant to be enjoyed in the bounds of marriage but we can be tempted to use it for our own selfish enjoyment through what we watch or what we do. Again, good things that we can misuse. These are the types of temptations that Jesus is going to face. But he didn't turn and run from them. He didn't say, 
well, I'm God, so I don't have to go through this. No. He identified himself with us, so he will face the struggle with temptation just like we do. And as he did, he willingly submitted to the Spirit and relied on the Spirit through the temptation. Jesus is the king who faced temptation just like we do. But there's another foundational reason that Jesus should be your king. It's that Jesus responded to temptation the way we need to. You see that in the bulk of this section of Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 through 10. Now, if you look at verse 2, of course, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been going without food. And in this, Jesus is reflecting the nation of Israel. Israel was tested by God for 40 years in the wilderness. And as they were, they often failed during this time, complaining and distrusting God. In this testing, Jesus is fulfilling what the nation had failed at. We know this because it's reinforced by the fact that every time Jesus responds to Satan in this account, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses wrote Deuteronomy toward the end of the wilderness wanderings, seeking to encourage the nation of Israel to trust God and follow him as they entered the promised land. And that points out a key truth for us. Temptation revolves around who you trust, who you're going to believe. Well, as you can imagine, after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus would be pretty weak at this point. I mean, I don't know about you, I feel it when I miss one meal, right? I'm looking for a granola bar or something to get me through. It's been 40 days and 40 nights. And at Jesus' weakest, Satan shows up with a subtle and insidious attack. And he starts with something that was really a necessity, food. I kind of tried to take the the temptations and just kind of summarize them in my own words. So, I'd say Satan started with the temptation of, it shouldn't be this hard. Notice in verse 3, the tempter, Satan, comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, at first glance, it can look like Satan's raising a question, if you are the Son of God. But he's actually not. The language that he uses, he's not raising a question, he's assuming it's true. Another way of saying it would be, since you are the Son of God. Remember, at the end of chapter 3, the Father had just verbally attested to this, and so Satan's agreeing. He points out, you're God. You don't have to be hungry. You've got the ability to take these stones and turn them into bread. You see, food is not the problem here. It's how Satan is trying to get Jesus to procure food to meet his human need. Let me put it to you this way. When you have a need, even a desperate need, 
Do you have the ability in your own power to call out and meet that need? Well, no, of course not, right? You're human. Now, ideally, you would be depending on God, doing what you can, but trusting in his provision. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's living his life having identified with us as human. He's depending on the Father to meet his human need, even though that provision is nowhere in sight. That's why he responds to Satan in verse 4. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 here. And in that, in that passage, it is where Moses tells Israel that God had tested them with hunger in the wilderness and provided them with manna so that they would learn to depend on him. Jesus doesn't play the God card here. No, he will depend on the Father just like you and I need to. Even if we are desperate and there's no provision in sight. He resists the temptation. Satan zero, Jesus won. But there's another temptation. Satan continues, and I summarized it this way. Well, you can trust God, can't you? You notice in verse 5, Satan takes Jesus up to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem. This is just to give you a a bit of an idea. This is the temple mount at the time of Jesus' uh, life, the temple being right there in the middle. It's not specifically identified, but most likely probably this pinnacle, the high point, is this corner of the temple mount. From there down to the street level, it would have been 140 feet. If you went off this side, that actually drops off into the Kidron Valley, which have been 300 feet. So it's very high, very prominent, very visible. And again, notice how Satan starts out. He's not raising a question. He's agreeing it's true. Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, because look at what your Father says. And Satan, that's why he says, for it is written, Satan says it there. And then he quotes from Psalm 91, a psalm where God promises protection. Satan is challenging Jesus. You're the son of God. God says he will protect you. Can't you trust him? Just throw yourself off. Show it. But what Satan is doing is what we can so easily do with Scripture at times. 
We take just enough of it to get what we want. Have you ever misused these? Wives, submit to your husbands. Or children, obey your parents. There's more of a context to it. I have had the experience of a dear friend telling me that he felt God would be fine with him living with and sleeping with his girlfriend before they were married because God would want them to make sure that this works before they get married. It's not in there. It's taking something and twisting it. Do you follow the thinking? Very simplistically, it's the, well, God wants me to be happy. This will make me happy, so God would want it for me. But Jesus knows the Father, and He knows the context of Psalm 91, so He could see the lie in how Satan misused God's Word. Now, Psalm 91 is a psalm of protection, but it's describing God's attitude of care and protection for the nation of Israel and those who follow Him. It is not a psalm that says, go do what you want, God will make sure nothing bad happens. That's not what it says. That would be presuming upon God. Again, that thinking of, well, God wants me to be happy. God would want me to have this. And ultimately, that is trying to manipulate God to your will. That's why Jesus responds in verse 7, and He says, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus knew God's will for the Messiah was not to gain attention and notoriety by throwing Himself off of the temple. Jesus knew He could trust the Father. He didn't need to manipulate the Father to prove it. And you know, that's a challenge for us. Because how do you approach God when it comes to trusting Him? Have you ever been tempted to manipulate Him that way? <clears throat> Have you ever had that where you're wrestling and you say, well, <clears throat> if God loves me, what, why didn't I get that dream job? You know, if God really cares about us, why, why did our offer on that house not get accepted? Or how could a loving God allow me to get cancer? Now, please don't misunderstand me. Those are real struggles that we really should come to God with. But the temptation can be that we think God needs to act the way that we say He should. We're trying to manipulate in that situation. Jesus saw through the lie, and He resisted the temptation. Satan zero, Jesus two. But Satan's not done yet because there was a third temptation. And I summarized it this way. There's an easier way than God's plan. 
As the account continues, in verse 9, Satan takes Jesus and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world with all their power, their wealth, their strength. That's the idea of their glory. And he says to Jesus in verse 9, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus is going to be king. That is God's plan. It's prophesied. God's working that way. That's God's plan for the Messiah, for Jesus. But how does he get there? What's God's plan to get him there? Well, it's living a human life, living much of it in obscurity, having to wait. What, at this point of, of temptation in the wilderness, Jesus is about 30 years old. What's he been doing all that? Come on, let's get this king thing going, right? That can be the temptation. And of course, God's plan involved Jesus' suffering, his death, and bearing the weight of our sin upon himself. That's not a very attractive job description, is it? But there's a quicker, easier way. Jesus, just follow Satan's plan. That means kingship now. You don't have to wait. There's no suffering involved. I mean, why would God keep this from you? Why wouldn't he want you to have this? Have you ever faced that type of temptation? Not to wait on God? Feeling that God's way is too hard? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's with finances. Maybe it's in repenting of some sin. Isn't there an easier way than God's plan? But what Satan is trying to do here is manipulate Jesus. In Scripture, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. But that is a limited and temporary role of influence. God is still God, and Satan must submit to him. You see that all throughout Scripture. So this is not a genuine offer on Satan's part. God's is. Satan is trying to thwart God's plan for the Messiah and protect himself. And all Jesus has to do is trust what Satan says instead of what God says. That's why Satan says, just fall down and worship me. All of this is eerily similar to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember there? Satan's like, just eat. Because when you do, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You won't die immediately. Right? He's manipulating. He's lying. But even though Jesus was weak, he quickly saw through the lie because he knew God's word. And notice how he responds in verse 10. He says to Satan, 
Away with you, Satan. This is a command. It's Jesus' first command. He tells Satan, get out of here. But he's still responding the way that you and I can. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Notice, he doesn't just stop with the command. <clears throat> he says, away with you, Satan, for it is written. Here's the authority of why he gives the command. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Only God should be worshiped. Only God's character can be completely trusted, and only His plan should be followed. Temptation seeks to turn you away from that. Temptation wants you to put your trust in someone else other than God, or something else other than God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They believed the serpent not their creator, God. Jesus resists the temptation. Satan zero, Jesus three. Can you imagine what that moment looked like? At his weakest point physically, having endured direct attack, direct temptation from Satan himself, Jesus doesn't fail. He doesn't give in because he trusts the Father and what the Father has said. I imagine Jesus standing there shaking, sweating, weak, humanly speaking, but not budging because he chooses to follow the Father. And Satan has to run away. What does Scripture tell us? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what's going on here. That's why Jesus should be your king. But there's a third foundational reason that Jesus should be your king. It's that Jesus proved why only he can be king. Chapter 4, verse 11 concludes, and it says, Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Jesus victoriously resisted temptation, which we often do not do. Michael Wilkins, in his commentary of Matthew, pointed out that Jesus succeeded in the worst conditions where Adam failed in the best conditions. Think about it. In the garden... Adam is there. It's the perfect environment. They have all of their needs met. They're in perfect health. And what do they do? Adam and Eve choose to believe the serpent. Jesus, in the dry wilderness, at his weakest point, not having had any food for 40 days and 40 nights, he trusts the Father. and follows God's plan. Jesus resisted temptation in the same way that God calls each of us 
to resist temptation. I hope you've noticed that throughout this account. We see here that Jesus submitted to the Spirit. He was choosing to follow God's leading, trusting God for the strength that he needed. We see that Jesus relied on the authority of God's Word. He allowed what God said to define what is true and right. And you know, when we face temptation, it is so easy for reality to get twisted in our minds. We don't think straight. There's the, the pressure of the situation. There's the desire that we have. And it's, it's easy to, to just get your thinking twisted. I experienced that very clearly in my own struggle as a young man with sexual temptation. It was hard at times to think through. But it's in those situations, in temptation, that we need to let God define what is true, right, and good. Even if that is excruciatingly hard, or wildly unpopular. Who are you going to trust? And we see in Jesus here that he recognized temptation is ultimately about whom you worship, whom you will trust. Will you trust your own emotions? Are you going to trust another person, public opinion? or God. That's why this is worship. Jesus is a king like no other. He lived his life on earth just like we do. He faced temptation just like we do. And he victoriously overcame every temptation which we do not do. The sin that temptation leads us to enslaves us and ultimately destroys us. Lust, pride, addiction, self-promotion, the list goes on and on. Now, your list probably looks different than mine, but we all battle with temptation. Jesus wants to free us from sin and make us part of his kingdom. The first step in that freedom is turning from your sin and putting your trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness. It's recognizing that you can't change yourself. You can't make up for your sin, but you trust that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the punishment that you deserve and that you trust he rose from the dead, showing that he did pay your punishment. And in that trust, turning to him, asking him to forgive you. That's the first step to letting him be king and give you true freedom. And if you're here this morning and you have never done that, let me invite you to do that before you leave today. You can do that in your seat, just talking to him. If you want to talk to somebody, come up afterward. Talk to myself. We'll grab one of the other pastors or deacons, someone, and 
they can talk through with you. That's the first step. But you may be here today, and you have already put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Can I say with you, praise God. Thank God that He has done that work in your life already. The question for you today is, are you living like He is your King? Are you seeking to follow Him every day in every choice? Do you trust Him with that? How are you responding to temptation in your life? Are you following His example of submitting to the Spirit, relying on God's Word, and worshiping Him with your choices? Now, you might say, I'm trying, Dave. It's hard, and I don't always follow Him, but I want to. I'm trying. Well, let me encourage you. Keep fighting. Keep following your King. He has has ensured the ultimate victory, and the Spirit is growing you through every test. And those times where you don't follow Him and you do choose the sin, confess that to Him. Own it. Turn from it. And 1 John 1, 9 says He will remove it from between you. But you might be on the other side of that. You might say, Dave, I gave up trying long ago. It was just too hard. I know I'm a failure. Well, let me encourage you this morning. You are accepted in Jesus. Your king has not given up on you. His spirit is still at work in you. Why, recognizing the failure is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. And He doesn't want you to believe the lie that temptation and sin define your life. Yes, they're real, and there are real consequences that you face, but they do not define you. Your King does. Now, that doesn't mean the battle is easy, but it does mean your king knows what you're going through, and his spirit is there to help you make a different choice when tempted. A passage of Scripture that just kind of took on some some fresh air to me uh, as I was studying through Matthew 4 is a very familiar passage probably for many of you, but Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 I put it up here in the New Living Translation to help us focus on what it's saying more than on familiar words. Notice, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Don't give up. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. 
he understands. Will you trust him? This morning, let me leave you with this one thought. The king personally and victoriously faced temptation. Follow your king through it each day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that only Jesus can be king. Thank you that though everyone in this room would have failed in that moment, if we were in the same situation, just like Adam and Eve did, Jesus did it. And thank you that he didn't take the easy way out. He didn't say, well, I'm God, so I don't have to deal with this. No, he submitted to the Spirit. He stood in the truth of your word, and he let you define what's truly valuable, what is right, even though that meant hardship, even though that meant pain for him. Thank you that he is a high priest, that he is a king who truly has lived what we live. If someone's here today and they've never put their trust in Christ, I pray that today would be that day where they turn from their sin and ask you for forgiveness because of Jesus. And believers here today, help them where they need to confess sin to get that right, but that they would say, I need to follow my king. Help us to submit to the Spirit in our lives that way. We do thank you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand once again.